John Ruskin once wrote, I shall only give one example, which however will show the reader what I mean from the manufacturer already alluded to, that of glass. Our modern glass is exquisitely clear in its substance, true in its form, accurate in its cutting. We are proud of this. We ought to be ashamed of it. The old Venice glass was muddy, inaccurate in all its forms, and clumsily cut, if at all. And the old Venetian was justly proud of it, for there's this difference between the English and Venetian workmen, that the former thinks only of accurately matching his patterns, and getting his curves perfectly true and his edges perfectly sharp, and becomes a mere machine for rounding curves and sharpening edges, while the old Venetian cared not a whit whether his edges were sharp or not. But he invented a new design for every glass that he made, and never molded a handle or a lip without a new fancy in it. And therefore, though some Venetian glass is ugly and clumsy enough when made by clumsy and uninventive workmen, other Venetian glass is so lovely in its forms that no price is too great for it, and we never see the same form in it twice. Now you cannot have the finish and the varied form too. If the workman is thinking about his edges, he cannot be thinking of his design. If of his design, he cannot think of his edges. Choose whether you will pay for the lovely form or the perfect finish, and choose at the same moment whether you will make the worker a man or a grindstone. Boom, John Ruskin. Tolsma, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center of Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We gather members of our ICS community here to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we're tackling some big questions. We're asking our guests to talk about the themes of evil, resistance, and judgment as they come up in the course of their work, their studies, and their lives. I'm Danielle Yet, and I'm also a junior member at ICS. Today, we're talking to Julia DeBoer, who's currently in the midst of her PhD studies here at ICS. Julia has had a lifelong passion for slow fashion practices, and today she's joining us to talk about slow fashion as a means of resistance. We'll welcome Julia back to the podcast in just a minute. Is there something that just irks you, that gnaws at you, that people just don't understand? 
For our first segment, Here's My Thought, we're giving folks the chance to set the record straight on any issue of their choice, big or small, in five minutes or less. This week, it's my turn. I'm Gideon Strauss, Academic Dean and a Senior Member at ICS, and here's my thought. Bow ties should be hand-tied. The only circumstance in which it is appropriate for you to wear a pre-tied clip-on bow tie is when A. You are a page at someone else's wedding and B. You are four years old or younger. I have complete sympathy with parents. Dressing their small children for participation in the pageantry of a modern wedding and trying to reduce the drama involved to the absolute minimum. Because the absolute minimum of drama is already a lot. You're trying to put the small child in a suit. You're trying to get done on time, even though you know your small child may not be the main culprit as far as wedding timing is concerned. You're thinking back to the dress rehearsal and how much of a success that was, not. You're dreading the high likelihood of major crying during the ceremony. You're so tired after four years of parenting and you still have high school parenting and college parenting ahead of you and one day this child may themselves get married. Now you're not only panicky, you're also tearing up. So by all means, parents, clip a bow tie on your wedding page child's collar. However, in all other circumstances, tie your own damn bow tie. Bow ties are to neckwear what slow pores are to coffee. Slow pores are certainly not necessary to the enjoyment of coffee, but slow pores signify the degree to which we respect the act of drinking coffee. They bring ceremony to our enjoyment of the drink. The slow pour is an act of playful mock seriousness. A slow poured cup of coffee is a warm beverage with a wink. What kills the enjoyment of a cup of slow poured coffee can be either the presence of a dead seriousness on the part of either the barista or the client, or the absence of the pretense of seriousness, which is like turning up for the carnival in your everyday dress. Hand-tied bow ties resist perfection. One tries to tie one's bow tie as neatly as possible and still it looks slightly sloppy. Somehow that slight sloppiness is part of the stylishness of the hand-tied bow tie. This is one reason why I've never been able to enjoy the bow ties in James Bond movies or really at any proper black tie event. The happiest bow tie is the everyday bow tie of the academic or the lawyer in which ceremonial precision is very much not part of the fun. So, friends, when suited, do wear bow ties. They are so much more fun than any other ties. But tie them on yourselves, please. For our second segment, we at ICS are reckoning with the problem of evil, exploring possible modes of resistance, and discerning moments of judgment as a community. 
so we're asking our guests to talk about how these issues intersect with their work and their lives. Today, we're joined once again by Julia DeBoer, who's joined Critical Faith many times in the past to discuss anything from constitutive language theory to the female sublime. Our resident Renaissance woman's topic of choice today is tied closely to her passion for knitting and other forms of slow or sustainable fashion practices as a key mode of resistance. So welcome back, Julia. Thanks for having me again on another random diverse topic. <laughs> We're just testing your, your limits here. Oh dear! how far Julia goes. There are things I will not come on here to talk about. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Um, so anyone who has talked with you for three seconds knows mm -hmm. that fashion and sustainable and slow fashion especially is a topic that is close to your heart. Why do you think slow fashion is uh, an important mode of resistance, which is how we're framing it? What do you, what do you think slow fashion resists? Um... I think in a larger conversation about evil and resistance, the topic of fashion and, uh, and specifically how fashion relates to sustainability or slow fashion is a unique case study where you can parse out the differences between individual responsibility on one hand and corporate on the other. And I mean corporate in terms of corporation as well as corporation as the body of collective... Um, you know, collective individuals within a community. Um, however, you know, smaller or large, you define that community. Um, like most situations in our lives where we notice a type of injustice, there's a need for a virtuous response or a response of any kind. Mm -hmm. And that needs to come from both the individual, um, the, you know, the one and from the many. I think like with almost anything you can buy, the presence of sustainability, quote unquote, as a buzzword has led to a lot of shame on the personal side and very little on the corporate side. Um, that is, one feels bad for making bad purchases, but we're being peddled pond scum in the first place and purchasing sustainably is really out of most people's grasp. Yeah. Uh, in reality, there's huge clothing companies who will burn leftover stock at the end of a season in order to ensure that it's unique and for them only and uh, to keep providing you with new stuff next year and keeping the you know the old year inaccessible and so it's really hard to look at individual purchasing and be angry about that in the face of corporate action like that yeah that really needs to be addressed and has very insufficiently been addressed because we continue to purchase from these companies that are doing this and similarly to um you know burning uh left leftover clothing or um talking about uh carbon emissions you see in fashion a similar conversation to a household addressing their eating habits or the way that they use electricity. Um, and it becomes, in each of those situations, kind of difficult to decide whether the individual or the individual household is actually making an impact in comparison to burning clothing and in comparison to uh, companies pumping out waste into our water. Um, so the fast fashion industry definitely needs advocates for corporate responsibility because conversations about individual consumerism are useless without the larger influence. So there is no individual responsibility in the sense that I laid it out above, but also yes, in the sense that this conversation fits into a larger Christian conversation about stewardship. Even if you're not the CEO of a company, you're called to care for creation in whatever small way you're able to. Yeah. Um, even for those who think climate change is overblown, where is your Christian impetus for saying there are better earth care practices? 
I think it's important to also discuss the deeply colonial origins of the climate crisis. Um, land was taken from indigenous people in Canada and in practically any place Europeans ended up going. And all of a sudden that land is populated and controlled, not by the people who had lived in their communities for centuries without harming it, but by conquerors. And so I'm not really interested in any environmental conversation, which does not prioritize indigenous sovereignty over their own land and bodies. There's a very recent Canadian example where earlier this year, the building went ahead of the coastal gas link on Wetetsuan uh, territory uh, out in Alberta and BC, mm-hmm. and dozens of indigenous protesters were arrested and the building of it was approved against their wishes. So I think it's pretty hard to have any sort of conversation about sustainability if we have that massive blind spot before us. Yeah. And another reason I think it's important to talk about resistance to evil in the particular rather than the general is that it's also a reality that the poorest quality products are usually all that's available to the poorest parts of our society. And so there's a buying loop where they cannot afford something of quality and so it falls apart faster and they end up replacing it sooner than they need to. Um, Or people with disposable income are buying cheap things because they can buy it in quantity. And even cheaply made things are not being worn until they disintegrate but tossed out. Um, So there's there is a need to address this on the individual level, address our relationship with the goods around us. So, yeah, slow fashion as this individualizing of what would be a huge, otherwise a huge problem. Yeah. Right? So kind of trying to make it more tangible, giving you something to hold on to. Yeah, often literally. <laughs> when you're holding an article of clothing, yeah. it gives you the ability to say what is my responsibility and what is not my responsibility around buying or owning this object in a way that it's really hard to in so many other contexts. Yeah, so it's resisting um, the kind of largeness of these forces that, like, you know, the corporate magnitude of things yeah. as well as just the sheer speed of things, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that it resists. Consumerism is its own evil, certainly, the way that it grips people. It's a, a spiritual problem and for a lot of people. Um, consumerism as a climate problem, but also slow fashion resists exploitative labor. Um, I think it resists the loss of knowledge and skills, not just with textile production, but also um, knowledge around environmental care and community care. Um, A lot of anthropologists and textile historians are in a rush against time to learn and document historical skills around the production of textiles, which by and large um, are more sustainably graded. But there's a social and political aspect because at the same time, as they're learning about sustainable textiles from nearly extinct people groups or or before the last generation with that knowledge passes away, they're also recording counter narratives against prevailing hegemonies. I think it also resists isolation because while the internet is probably my largest resource for learning new skills, um, as regards to my last point about community care, there's too commonly an age gap where the people who know how to sew or mend, spin, weave, et cetera, are aging and they're eager to pass their craft on. And you really just need to ask. Um, It's now really easy to find a knitting group or take a poetry class. And so you might be able to learn these skills in a limited way Um, from a book or from an online resource, but only ever in a limited way without that community. I think it's resisting gender expectations. 
in medieval times, knitting guilds were professionally for men and women knit at home for families. Mm -hmm. Um, You could compare this to professional chefs being uh, by and large men and the love of cooking that they were given came from their mothers teaching them how to cook at home. Um, I think it was very natural for women to want to disassociate from many of the traditional homemakers tasks. Um, What should have happened was having the skills of making and mending normalized as basic life skills everyone needed to know but the stigma of it being women's work kind of prevented men from embracing it now scholars and crafters alike are realizing the positive side of feminine histories associated with crafting and the idea of women's work is being redeemed but at the same time the skills need to be evenly learned by everyone um, because it's now a climate issue and it's now um, something that could really impact our very near future a lot of crafting has been associated with um, relieving the um, effects of mental health and depression. Um, It's been like knitting has been called the new yoga (laughs) and with um, growing depression and mental health crises we're facing having very specific economic and social origin. um, Something like this, an activity that has a productive side to it that is itself a very community-oriented activity, I think could be a counterforce against that. Yeah. So you've started mentioning crafting mm-hmm. alongside your slow fashion and yeah. sustainable fashion and all these things. And I think when you when you frame it as slow fashion, I think it immediately calls to mind, you know, fast fashion, which people are generally familiar with, I think. Yeah. Or it's easier to assume that. Um, yeah, the rapid change of seasonal wear and <laughs> all these things. Uh, so for those who don't know, though, or who might be wondering, how would you describe something like slow fashion to that person? Yeah, I think the terminology of slow fashion is very intentional to contrast it from fast fashion, the effects of which we're all becoming more aware of, um, but also there's a generosity i think to saying slow fashion instead of only sustainable fashion i think it's a natural leap from sustainable fashion to thinking about slow fashion because sustainably produced clothing is usually out of the income range and the you know the flexible income of most people um certainly myself as a grad student so i had to start thinking creatively about how i could respond to fast fashion while having very little spending power mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there are many ways you could define slow fashion, but I think it asks for more than just sustainable purchasing. It asks you to recycle. It asks you to mend your clothing. It asks you to learn skills so that you can make clothing for yourself or adapt clothing that you find or, um, has never really worked for you in your wardrobe before you kind of get rid of it. Um, so it's not just about buying. And I think that makes it a lot more accessible especially intersectionally, um, when you consider gender and um, class and race, um, all of these intersections. And in order to address the personal side of responsibility, uh, you hear discussion in several different discourses and disciplines, almost theologically, almost politically, about a new materialism, uh, individuals who are trying to readjust their relationship with their clothes and household goods, foods, almost as or deliberately as a form of spiritual discipline. Mm. Um, This is nothing new, obviously. Thrift has become 
a form of personal piety in so many different moments of religious history, for better or for worse, <laughs> um, with some uh, better expressions being like monastic communities. Um, I think also of again another food example because the fast fashion and the um, kind of the the food industry really parallel each other in a lot of ways. Um, but I think of the um, Mennonite produced more with less cookbook, um, a book representing a communally held um, understanding that there's enough to go around with patience and some individual sacrifice, more people can be fed. So it's a cookbook of recipes and reflections about global food shortage and spiritual contemplation. Hmm. There's a healthiness, I think, when individual intuitions about evil can gain a communal expression like that. Um, and so there's a parallel community expression among crafters and sewers and knitters or you know any other classification one would give themselves to address such community, to address such consumerism with thrift or in, uh, intention. And it's widely called the slow fashion or slow maker movement. It actually shares a lot of similarities in discourse directly and indirectly with the arts and crafts movement championed by William Morris or Don Ruskin during the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. People make, upcycle, recycle their clothes for a variety of reasons. Um, for some, they want to be involved with the manufacture of their clothes as much as possible because it's increasingly hard to know where and by whom your clothing is being made. Um, I think it's not just the social angle that keeps people doing it because they want to kind of withdraw from these production lines, these production chains, but also the creative or aesthetic aspect because you get to make, you get to create, you get to imagine a wardrobe for yourself that's tailor-made to fit your own body mm -hmm. and your vision of who y you can be in such clothing. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a poetic way of being in the world in relation to your own body's need for clothing. And it really praises imperfection in a way that most fashion doesn't. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I like about reading um, John Ruskin of the aforementioned arts and craft movement is that he is against large manufacture of um, goods that were previously considered uh, artisanal goods for two reasons. The first of which is the labor conditions in the industrialization of those processes, um, but also the denaturing of the role of the artist as the creative subject. Mm -hmm. So he talks about the shallow relationship consumers will have with mass manufactured goods. And his example um, or me parsing his example, <laughs> if you have a set of glasses in your cupboard that are all the same, uh, you don't really have a favorite because none of them stand out to you when you grab it, and your material blessings will fade into the background because you didn't notice uh, that your favorite mug was available to you at the time you went to pour your coffee. <laughs> so the same thing applies when you're making your own garment, when you're knitting it, sewing it for yourself. So if I had to kind of say one final thing about what slow fashion is. I think it's meant to acknowledge that turning over one's wardrobe toward these sustainability goals usually takes time and it should not be done hastily by just tossing things out and creating waste or even by buying sustainably without recognition about what you need or how the purchases will serve you. So it's definitely a contemplative practice in the sense of slow, but also slow in the f fact that it's not fast fashion and it's not you know, buying into these same uh, mo models of purchasing that you've had your entire life flow in both those senses. Yeah. So you had mentioned kind of passingly the idea of uh, slow fashion being like a mode of withdrawing or people thinking that it was a mode of withdrawing. Uh, and I kind of want to focus in on that. 
because people might hear us talking about slow fashion as a mode of resistance and think of it as this purely reactionary kind of stance. Uh, so first, I guess I'd ask if you think that's true or not. Uh, and second, uh, whether you think there are other more active ways of talking about um, what slow fashion does. I don't think that I immediately came to slow fashion or slow fashion as a form of resistance uh, for its own sake. It definitely was a very natural progression from me learning how to knit, taking up a fascination with knitting and sewing and quilting, wanting to learn more, and then finding out about all of these things that were kind of going on in the background and affecting uh, the types of materials that I could get my hands on for crafting or uh, who was being given voice within that community to say what should be done. Um, so it was more just as I educated myself about it and I learned more out of passion, I discovered that there was this justice aspect to it that had been latent. So uh, it wasn't that I took up crafting as a form of resistance or reaction, depending on your definition, but there, there are definitely people who come to it um, from that perspective. But I think that there are things to be learned from s taking up a practice of slow fashion for your wardrobe um, that are not just about resistance to evil. Mm -hmm. But there are so many things that I've learned as a result of listening to the stories of people who were being impacted by these problems. So when I started to learn about the diversity of sheep breeds and what different types of wool could offer me as a knitter. <laughs> um, you know, the way that like Shetland wool is kind of fluffy and fuzzy and, um, you know, there are other British long wool breeds that have very long, luxurious, um, it's called staple length to their wool. So it looks more silky when it's spun rather than fluffy and started, you know, wondering why is it so hard to find some of these breeds if they have these American amazing characteristics to it. And then you learn a story about farmers who are uh, raising these sheep aren't actually getting yarn made from their wool at the end of the season. They're burning it because it costs them too much money to find a mill who's willing to spin it because the textile industry has gone you know, down the drain in the last 15 to 20 years. So even though there are people wanting to use these products, they can't afford to do that. Uh, so they're burning this wool that has, you know, the specific characteristic that knitters want. Um, and so you start to ask why that is, and you just, you get pulled into it from, um, from a love mm -hmm. of the wool and a love of the product. Yeah. Um, I also learned a lot about my own body. It sounds weird to say that my own body by, um, making a change to start wearing, uh, cotton and wool and silk and linen instead of, um, polyester and nylon mm -hmm. because um, I you know would always feel very uncomfortable in my own skin and unsure of myself how did I look in this outfit and then I started wearing natural clothes and suddenly felt that that problem dropped by like 50% in my own life because I suddenly felt bodily comfortable in what I was wearing I wasn't sweaty I wasn't feeling tight or uncomfortable and that was a simple switch that I made that had nothing to do with self-image. Yeah. It was just learning about these things. So you've obviously <laughs> been sitting with these things for a while and not, oh, well, you know, literally sitting with them and yes. knitting and <laughs> crafting things. Yeah. Um, so you've 
become integrated into these like communities and things that you mentioned and have you know taken all of this time and put all this effort into like educating yourself around all of these things that go into creating these things for yourself yeah. so taking up the practice so I'm just wondering for again thinking of some of the people who <laughs> haven't made this a practice for themselves uh what might be a good way for people to begin practicing uh, this slow fashion <laughs> if they don't necessarily have those skills to like make their own clothes for example yeah uh, and could you maybe point out some specific resources for people to to have a oh, look at oh it's a whole rabbit hole you could <laughs> fall down into um, I think if you find this idea interesting or if you've thought about it before the first thing you can do is think about what you are wearing right now um, actually just start to think through your clothes and your wardrobe pull everything out uh for example uh give you an inventory of what i'm wearing right now and the relative sustainability of each individual garment um i'm wearing a uh, a sweater today that is partially cotton but also partially polyester which means that garment is never fully going to decompose into the earth it just won't part of it you know the cotton fibers will eventually erode over time but part of it is just still going to be there um, the dress that I'm wearing is made from vicose, which is a bamboo-derived fiber. So like cotton or linen or wool, it is biodegradable, except that um, there is no wide-scale recycling of cotton or vicose or silk or um, you know any of these other um, biodegradable fibers because the supply chain involved in that and the you know the same problems of who's going to buy it how are we going to make this affordable are present there just as much as they are with people who want to recycle plastics in some way mm. how you can do that on a large scale um, so even though I've chosen to buy a dress that's not polyester um, will there be anywhere aside from burying it in my backyard so that it decomposes that it can actually do that or that it can be transformed into something else mm. um the this is a dress that I needed to buy because I needed it to serve a very specific function in my wardrobe and I didn't have a lot of money to spend on it so I did go to a box store and buy it and it's hard to say whether the choice of purchasing something that was made of vicos rather than polyester really matters in comparison to who produced that clothing you know, I made one choice, but did I justify it because I went to this box store that I know has kind of a shaky history on that matter? Mm. That's not a question that I necessarily feel qualified to answer. Wearing nylon tights, similarly, those are never going to decompose. Hopefully, they, you know, soon there'll be a supply chain to transform it into something else. Um, I'm wearing hand-knit socks, which is a good choice because I made it myself. <laughs> I was the laborer involved. But um, a lot of commercially produced sock yarns for knitters still contain 10 to 25% nylon um, in order to give it durability. Um, so similarly to my, um, to my sweater, only part of that is ever going to decompose if buried in the dirt somewhere. <laughs> and uh, there are definitely sock yarns out there that if I spent 5 to $10 more, I could have the strengthening agent in it be silk or bamboo rather than nylon. But that would put it out of my normal spending money for the yarn you know for the money that I set aside to buy yarn and crafting supplies um, I'm wearing leather boots that I've worn for four or five seasons now so I'm pleased that I made a choice to buy them even though probably cut into my grocery bill a lot when I you know <laughs> new grad student and decided to purchase them for battling Toronto with uh winters 
Um, so I would encourage you to start by doing that with the outfit that you're wearing right now when you're listening to this and then go and do that with your entire wardrobe and count how many pieces you have in your wardrobe. So maybe you can watch a YouTube video and learn how to mend your jeans. Um, there's also an idea called visible mending where you turn the action of mending or repairing a garment into an art form itself, trying to highlight that you've repaired it and normalize repairing and mending garments again instead of trying to make it look like there was never a patch there. I think if you want kind of resources you can go and check out, begin with YouTube or begin with Instagram or um, you know just typing into Google the thing that you're interested in. You'll definitely find videos on how to knit and weave and spin. Um, guilds still exist to teach these things. You can take classes for pretty cheap. Uh, people are waiting around to teach you how to do these things. You just need to ask. But start to read up on slow fashion. Follow hashtag slow fashion if you're an Instagram or a Twitterer. Um, or visible mending or um, kind of any of these other buzzwords. Uh, for immediate education on this, I would recommend a journalist writing on the intersection of theology and fashion right now. Her name is Whitney Bach, and her last name is spelled B-A-U-C-K. And she's just turning out amazing articles yeah. on everything from um, carbon offsetting and big companies like Gucci to contemplative makers. She did an article on a friend of mine who is uh, a monk, and he's a knitter <laughs> down in New York State, um, and about how... Um, that connects to his spiritual disciplines inside the monastery. So she writes about pretty diverse things, and it's a very accessible way to just start reading some of these journalism articles and, and learning about it. I definitely got there just by reading about things and having conversations with people, and it didn't happen overnight. Yeah. And that brings us to our final segment, What's your pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and the television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Danielle, what's your pleasure? Uh, my pleasure is scandal. Mm. just sounds really provocative to say that, <laughs> so I wanted to say that. Uh, <laughs> I in my newfound uh, free time, mm -hmm. have <laughs> discovered the show, the TV show, Scandal, with, I think her name is Carrie Washington, is the main actress, mm. and uh, Shonda Rhimes is the, like, director and everything. Um, and its basic plot summary is, uh, this Carrie Washington character plays is a fixer they call her in washington dc and basically fixes all the myriad scandals that happen in washington dc um so it's kind of your in many ways like your typical set quasi-legal drama mm -hmm. tv show and apparently that's just what i wanted in my life <laughs> right now <laughs> so i've just been watching episode after episode mm -hmm. um it's actually it's really well acted and i've I've actually not, I've been thinking the whole time I've been watching it so far, like when, trying to remember when it came out, because I think it's been, it's on its seventh season at wow. least. Wow. Uh, so it's been out for a number of years already, mm -hmm. but I'm not quite sure when. And it's just like watching it and 
seeing the kind of like stories that they have in throughout the episodes and stuff and the kind of scandals that occur and whatever <laughs> it's like either you were very prescient or these things were like already happening <laughs> so mm. i don't know it's kind of a mixed bag emotionally in terms of pleasure or not <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's equal parts like addicting and like extremely sad <laughs> it's a drama it's a drama have you seen it no i haven't oh yeah yeah it is it's a drama for sure but it's very good. So mm. that's my that's my pleasure. Wow. Um, my pleasure is uh, we have a, a little rivalry brewing between uh, Ron Kuypers and I. Ah, yes. Because he's an Oilers fan and I am a Canucks fan because I'm from Vancouver. Uh, so yesterday they there's the first game of the season and uh, sadly the Oilers won. Oh. So I'm a, little, I'm a little ticked off. But Ron's happy. Yeah. Connor McDavid scored with like five minutes left and don't like that guy. But. Is this the beginning of the season then? Yeah. It's <laughs> the very, very <laughs> As I show game. my complete <laughs> hockey ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very first game. Hopefully I can get into like a, a Toronto Maple Leafs game or something. Those, those are some pricey tickets. Yeah. They're, they're, they're hot, hot tickets. But yeah. Have you, have you admitted your... Uh, team love to Jim Moltice yet either because he is also an extremely dedicated Oilers fan. No, I haven't talked to him about hockey, but maybe wait until after your classes are done. That's it for our show this week. We hope you'll stay tuned for the rest of our episodes this semester. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. You can follow Julia as Julia R. DeVore. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.